0: Good morning. That was an inglorious beginning. Yeah. Amen. I wasn't going to have you stand and, and read the scriptures today because we're really only looking at one verse. It was a choice about reading part of a verse or reading three chapters. I decided to go on the side of one verse. You may regret that later on. We'll see how it goes. But the passage we're really looking at, Matthew 1:18, simply says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And that's what we're going to explore today. Would you begin with a word of prayer? Father God, I thank you that we can gather today in your name. We thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to gather in your name, to worship and to celebrate the reality of your birth, and to anticipate that day when we will someday be reunited with you before your throne. Open our hearts and our minds to your truth, O oh God, and speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remain seated. Okay. In this series that we've been covering through the Christmas time, we called it the thrill of hope. And one of the things that I have pointed out first and foremost was the miraculous nature of Jesus's birth. Um, that basically being born of a virgin is conceptually impossible, and yet the Bible very clearly declares that God did a one-off when he became a man and he dwelt among us. And in many ways, it's the simple impact of Christ's life speaks to the reality that you can't just simply uh, write it off as something that was a myth. In fact, it was something we found, secondly, that it was foretold. In copious detail by various Old Testament prophets, they, they went hundreds and even thousands of years before he arrived, the Bible began to speak of the day in which a Messiah, a Savior would come. And hence, the New Testament writers would repeatedly say to us, like in Acts 3.18, that God fulfilled what he had foretold. God fulfilled what he had foretold, and in that, we realize that God is the only true bookend of history. He is the beginning of history, and he is the consumer and consummate end of history, and that we are simply marching through this thing called time until we reach the final destination, which is an eternal destination, that man wasn't created for time, he was created for eternity. And that's a concept that's really simple to grasp, and yet it seems like it's rarely grasped in our day and age, that most people kind of live every day as if they're going to live forever. And I don't know, I want to give you a little bit of a reality flash here. You're not going to live forever. You're temporary, and you're passing through, and soon, too soon for many of us, you'll be leaving this present world and entering into the eternal world created by God. God who understands that, the creator of all things, therefore has destined us to a day of accounting, a day in which we will stand before his presence and there will be an estimation of our life. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or did you reject his message? And as a follower of Christ, have you followed after him? Have you made him the priority of your life? Or has he failed to compete adequately with millions of other things as the apostle or Jesus spoke of in the parable of the sower, that the desire for other things began to take precedent over their lives? So that one of the things we find is that, as Isaiah the prophet said, that God foretold the coming of his son because he said, in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. That God foretells that we might know that he foretells because therefore we can begin to conclude logically that he also foreordains the trajectory of human history that we're not simply finding our way like blind men in the dark, feeling for the future, but we are people who are being taken on a journey. And the only thing that's really left is how we respond to all of that. So that when we find these numerous references in the Scripture God saying, don't worry about this and don't worry about that, <coughs> and we sit back and say, well, if I don't worry about it, who's going to worry about it? And the answer is God. That God says, you can trust me. As we talked about last week, he says, for I have a plan for you to bless you and to prosper you. But I also spoke about the importance of the doctrinal aspects of just believing in the virgin birth. I mean, many people act as if it's an optional thing to believe whether Christ was born uh, by the Holy Spirit or whether it was just something that had a little hanky-panky in, in, behind the stall that nobody wants to talk about. And even though that people might think that's a small issue, it becomes pivotal because without Christ's death on the cross, there is no adequate sacrifice for my sin. There's a reason that God instituted the idea of the sacrificial lamb. There's a reason why John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, because the only way that the world's sins could be removed is by a perfect, spotless, unblemished, sinless sacrifice being offered for spotted, blemished, sinful people like you and me. I know that we would like to flatter ourselves, you and me, from time to time, that somehow we aren't quite as spotted and quite as blemished and quite as sinful as, say, your next-door neighbor who kept you up all night because he was partying. But let me break the bad news to you. (laughs) You are. God's measuring stick is not ours. It's not as we would do. That we would create all sorts of exemptions. We'd do it like legislators do. we just create all these carve-outs with special exceptions for those we like. But God said he has condemned the entire world under sin. That the whole world, as the prophet said, dwells in darkness. And then as Isaiah said, but a light has come into that world, and it's the light of life in men. Without Christ's death on the cross, as Paul would say to the, the, to the Corinthians, your faith would be futile and you would still be in your sins. And part of the heart of the gospel message is this absolute, hopeless, sinless condition that can only be re- remedied by the perfect and the spotless sacrifice. And even though that may seem to some an easy concept to grasp, and yet it is the hardest thing in the world to do, As I was sharing with a gentleman one time about the gospel, he said to me, well, that's too easy. He was a Jew, and he said, that's too easy. You've got to work. You've got to do things to prove that you deserve heaven. And I said, no, the truth of it is it's a very simple message, but it's not an easy message. The simplest message in the world is if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. But let me tell you, one of the hardest things you will ever endeavor doing is surrendering your life forever to his lordship and his rule. And so I said, that's not easy, that's just simple, and there's a huge difference between those two things. And those of us who have come to Christ realize that it is not easy walking with the Lord. Oh, I know that God gives us more grace, we know the Holy Spirit is our our comforter, and and he gives us the ability, and yet there's something, not the obstacle that holds us back, but rather the thing that's within our own heart. Because at the end of the day, if I'm going to successfully be a follower of Christ, I have to do the very thing that is most noxious to me. That is, I have to die to myself. Though when Jesus laid out the call of discipleship in Matthew 16, he said, if any man will come after me, which I basically believe any man includes all of us here in this room, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. I don't mind following him if I don't have to deny myself. I don't mind following him if I don't have to live a crucified life, but it's that very aspect that I am no longer choosing my less life now. I'm choosing to follow what he said in his word. And that's one of the things that brings me face to face with that sinful nature that rests within my heart, that oftentimes expresses itself in subtle and in secret ways that I don't even recognize myself. So much so that the psalmist referred to our secret sins. And as I'm reading that, I'm thinking about people who have secret sins, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit says, well, let's talk about your secret sins. And my response as a man of faith is, I'd rather not. I'd rather talk about your sins. Let's do that for a while. But when we have to say, God, search me and know my heart, as David said in Psalm 139, and see if there is any wicked in way in me, now, now the Christian life no longer becomes easy. It becomes the great challenge. And yet the great challenge is what makes it a worthy life to live. But I think one other thing that, and I want to camp on for a few moments here, is that despite the fact that the prophets foretold, they also in a way sort of warned us that when he came, it would be unexpected At least it would be unexpected in his form and his format. The Jewish world was ready for a Messiah to come who would banish the Romans. They were looking for the son of David. And in that, that meant David, the great conqueror, the one who built Israel into a world empire. He would come back, and he would live, and he would reign, and he would build this mighty empire. And his 12 apostles, they realized that they would be like the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel... They argued continuously about who was going to be the greatest when he asserted himself into his kingship. John and James even had their mother, Jesus' aunt, go in and lobby on their behalf, to which the other disciples had said were indignant, because everybody knows it's not fair to have your mom try to get you a promotion. And yet, Isaiah had said in Isaiah 53 in the great psalm predicting the Messiah, he said, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. Interesting words majesty, beauty, appearance. It's ironic to us because we live in a culture which worships at each of those thr- shrines. We l- worship at the thr- throne of the shrine of beauty, the shrine of appearance. The shrine of majesty. We get all verklimpt when somebody is called a duke or a duchess or a prince or a king. We, We kind of, wow, how do you get that? And the answer was by being born in the right place at the right or wrong time. And yet he says, when your king comes to you, it will have none of the markers, none of the indicators. There will nothing about him that will stand out. And it's so hard for us to grasp because every one of us, I think, is con- convinced that if Jesus were to walk into the room, we'd recognize him immediately. The robe and the sandal and the beard would give him away. I mean, I've seen his picture already, so I know what he looks like. And yet when we begin to say, well, actually, there was, he wasn't particularly tall. He wasn't particularly stout or strong or masculine in an unordinary sense. He he wasn't particularly attractive to look at. He didn't dress in a way that would make him distinct from the rest of the crowd. He didn't own anything. <laughs> he depended upon the kindness of others to provide for his needs. In fact, Zechariah the prophet had said 700 years before he came as well, he said, your king is coming to you. And the word that's used in the original, it can be translated several different ways, none of them very complimentary. It can mean poor, it can mean wretched, it can mean needy, it can mean weak, humbly, lowly. You see, as Paul would explain, he intentionally sought to be unimpressive in the ways that we try to impress other people. He intentionally came that we wouldn't be able to respond to him by our natural senses or even our natural resources. But rather, Paul said, who being in the very nature of God made himself nothing. Now, if you're wondering what the Greek... It translates there, the Greek word is literally nothing. You come here for this kind of information. But instead, it says he took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So not only does he insult us, God lowered himself to become like you and me, but he also said he did so on purpose. It's interesting, Michael Cosper put this really well. I I heard it on a podcast, and I had to copy it down because I thought it was so, so profound, really. He said, God always accomplishes his purposes in ways that subvert expectations. God always accomplishes his purposes in ways that subvert our expectations. Those of you who are Christians have been so for a period of time. How many times have you found yourself kind of disappointed because God didn't do it the way you thought he should? You left him clear directions. It's called your prayer life. And he didn't do it the way you did He certainly didn't listen to your timing. You know, I, I pray for patience right now. And yet, when we find that God sometimes does something so very different than we had anticipated or expected, that he simply, what Cosper is saying is, this is kind of God's trademark. He subverts our expectations that we would not live with expectations, but rather we would live in anticipation. What's the difference between the two? An expectation says, I know what it's supposed to look like. Anticipation says, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I trust whatever God's going to do, it's going to be good. It's going to be great, and it's going to be glorious. So that I remove myself from the place of being the moderator of my own life, and I surrender myself to let him be the master of my life. As the prophets would say, he is the potter, and we are the clay. Let's be honest, friends. This is the point. This is where the battlefield is. It's in the clay fields. It's pulling the clay out and being sifted and cleaned and and then having your life shaped after what he has designed to be, not what you have been designed to be. This is the day-to-day struggle. This is the day-to-day conflict. Now, I know some of you are feeling a little heady right now because you prayed for a white Christmas. A pox on your house. <laughs> but Cosper went on to say that when God sub- subverts our expectations, that looks like failure and foolishness. The Savior of the world didn't come as a th- on a thundercloud surrounded by an army. He came as a helpless baby. It was C.S. Lewis who added to that. He says, Once our world, once in our world, literally meaning once in the history of mankind, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. In 1926, a Canadian pastor by the name of James Allen Francis wrote what I consider probably the best way of capturing these dynamics, the the uniqueness of Christ's birth, in a sense both seeing the ordinariness of his birth and the extraordinariness of his birth at the same time. That seeming contradiction is one of the things that really captures minds and has captured minds throughout history. When R.J. Tolkien said, Is it possible that the history is so literal that we almost stumble over it. It's something that you're familiar with. I read it every Christmas, so if you've been here for any Christmases, you've already heard it again. I never tire of reading it. Now, I might tire if you were reading it to me, but I never tire of reading it to you. But it's called One Solitary Life in its latest version. And it reads like this. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village as a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 and then for three years was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never married. He never went to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness, not one. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, and one of them denied him. Another betrayed him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon the cross between two criminals. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying. And when he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 20 centuries have come and gone, and he should have long ago been forgotten. Yet today, he is the center of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon earth as powerfully As this one solitary life. Probably is no more clearly declared or made evident by the simply fact that our entire dating system is predicated on before he came and after he died. It's the way that we mark time, and I don't think that's merely incidental, I think it's intentional, divinely orchestrated. The point is that if all of this is true, as, as Alan states, and from the facts, it certainly it assures us that these things are true. Why is it so easy for men to ignore him both then and now? Maybe because Jesus didn't come into the world to be important. He already was important. When he says in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one, there is no higher approbation that can be given to one than be, be basically saying, if you see the, me, you see the Father. That I and my Father are one. I am God incarnate. So that he didn't have to strive to be important. Rather, he came into the world to do something important. Something that was eternally important. Important. Unlike us, he wasn't spending his trying, time trying to be someone or impress someone. He was already the ultimate someone. Rather, he came to do something that no one else could possibly do. He did not seek celebrity, yet the whole world has inadvertently, year after year, celebrated him by acknowledging Christmas. Of course, the fact that he came into the world, as Zechariah described, being poor and humble, wretched, needy, weak, and lowly, none of that did much to polish his resume, at least from a human point of view. It's not the kind of beginning that ordinarily prepares one for a life of power and prestige and prominence and possessions. He wasn't, trying to be one of the elites, as so many are striving today. And that's not to say that there was nothing notable, no notable signs of his greatness, but they could only be seen by those who were willing to see them. In fact, those signs are quite remarkable, especially when we begin to look at the details and how they are organized, especially if we put it into a chronological sequence. You see, the entire story that's told to us of his birth by Matthew and Luke takes only six minutes to read. Now you say, how do you know that? Because I spent six minutes reading it yesterday so that I could certify to you. And I wasn't speed reading but when you read it, you begin to read it as a narrative. When people say, well, it's just full of mythology and, and it's, it's all made up and so forth. It doesn't give us permission to do that. It writes it as if it's recording a historical event. And that's an important thing for textual scholars to understand they often say that about Genesis. You know, Genesis was basically this mythological description of the cosmos and how it came into being. And we have examples of that in other cultures who have done the same thing. We've got examples of virgin births in other cultures. And so therefore, this is just the Jewish Christian version of what everybody else has done. And yet, if you take the time, as unfortunately I've had to do, and you've read them, you realize that there's nothing about them that sounds historical. They're not historical narratives. They're so filled with ridiculous stuff, unverifiable stuff. They take place in times that, don't, that they didn't exist in and so forth. You begin to go through all those details and you realize this is clearly something that somebody made up. But when you read the biblical narrative, especially when you begin to reconstruct it in its chronological and sequential way, you begin to realize this is written down like recorded history that somebody's trying to communicate a set of facts as for the date there are various estimates as to exactly when it took place and it's complicated to get it exact but you see scholars look at the geopolitical dynamics who were the emperors who were the kings who were the governors who were the magi and what role would they have played in all of this And these are all historically identifiable and verifiable persons. And in fact, that's what's so interesting is Matthew and Luke both listed and named all of those things in exactly the order in which they should have had. We find them holding positions of power that they would have held. There are historical events that are surrounding it that are also mentioned. There's cultural dynamics that show us that really the story is set in the right time, in the right series of events. Even the geographical descriptions are accurate to the minutest detail. And then, of course, we have the astrological or the astronomical alignments, conjunction of planets that would all have coincided exactly with the events, especially as they were claimed by the Magi. That would be a two-hour lecture all into itself, which I'm not prepared or qualified to give you. But our best guesses as to when Jesus came into this world as a man is someplace between 4 and 1 B.C. And the problem is, is because the historians can't exactly agree amongst themselves on some of the contemporaries that are mentioned there as to when they, were, when they passed away or were in power. But what we are more certain about is the length of the nativity story. And this is something that really is most surprising to many people because the nativity story is recorded in Matthew and Luke covers a period of at least four years. Now we grew up watching stories of movies and cartoons and basically they wrap the whole thing up in 30 minutes and that's including all of the songs. And so we get this idea, this very compressed idea that this was something that just happened, boom, 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 and then moved on. And yet it was something that extended over a long period of time. And as you begin to unwind the details and and unpack what's there, you begin to realize, of course, that's exactly what it's telling us. Now, when Matthew wrote his gospel, like many writers today, he was not particularly concerned with the chronology of the events Rather, he grouped things together topically. That's the whole structure of his, his, his gospel. He, we have the teaching of Jesus surrounded by events. And another teaching of Jesus surrounded by events. And that's the way the entire gospel of Matthew is constructed. Because his concern was not to give a tight, but rather a rather loose chronology. Because his concern was that we would recognize that Jesus had fulfilled the prophet's requirements for the Messiah. That he was the Messiah. Luke, coming from a very different background, from a Greek and, and medical background, was very concerned about the details, very concerned about the historicity of the story he was telling, so that his chronology is far more faithful to the events, but not really repeating the things that Matthew had already said. So what we find is he doesn't tell us anything about the Magi, while he also adds details about Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, the, the shepherds who come, about Simeon and Anna, characters that are not included in Matthew's summarized gospel. But Luke also explained in the introduction to his gospel what he was setting about to do. He said, I was going to take those things that were handed down to us, he said, by eyewitnesses. I have carefully, he said, investigated everything from the beginning to write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things which you have been taught. So what I'm going to attempt to do in the time that we have left, I think, what do we have? An hour and a half still to go? Because of unfair and unwarranted time constraints, (laughs) I'm going to provide you with a brief summation of the nativity story in its chronological sequence. And I pray you'll forgive me for my abbreviated style. I don't obviously have time to read through all the text. But our story begins in a small, unimpressive village of Nazareth. Some 90 miles away from Bethlehem, 80 miles from Jerusalem due north, this village was located in a very steep, deep valley, surrounded all sides by the mountains of Galilee. In other words, if you had been taking the main road from that side of the Sea of Galilee down south, you wouldn't have even known that the city of the village of Nazareth was there it 's so well hidden now now today it 's a city of probably seventy five thousand people, and the houses flow up the sides of the mountains and over again. But yet it sits in this very unique, settled place. In fact, we have uncovered, archaeologists have uncovered the original city of Nazareth from the time of Jesus. And it's right at the base, in the very center of this little settle, in the midst of all of these high mountains. It would be more accurate to call it a settlement than to call it a town. It had no more than 150 residents. And all of them were direct descendants from the house of David. They had been taken to Babylon, and they had returned from Babylon probably 100 years prior and settled there in order to re-inhabit the land. But even though they were directly descended from the house of David, they had none of the glory, none of the pomp, or none of the circumstances that had been part of the kingly line. But in many ways, they had picked this place intentionally. They wanted to be separated from the secular influences that was growing in the land from the Greeks and then later on from the Romans. It is here in this well-out-of-the-way place that pious Jews made their settlement and also the place where the greatest miracle in the history of the world took place. It said, God sent the angel Gabriel to a virgin named Mary and said, you will become pregnant and have a son and you are to name him Jesus and he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. It's at this point that the scene actually shifts 90 miles to the south to the small Levitical town of Ein Karem. There Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah who is a priest were to conceive a child in their old age and he would become John the Baptist the forerunner of the Messiah spoken of by the prophet Malachi and Elijah. Mary, on knowing that she is pregnant, may have been just a few months along when she went to Ein Karem. And she stays with them for three months until John the Baptist is born, and then she returns to Nazareth. Now, most of us understand that when a woman is in her third or fourth month of her pregnancy, she undoubtedly is going to show. And it becomes something that is not easily hidden if she should so so choose to do so. So that on returning to Nazareth, her pregnancy now is really obvious. And it prompts her soon-to-be husband to decide, as it says in Matthew's Gospel, to divorce her quietly. But then it goes on, but an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus or Yehoshua. And when Jesus and Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord said or had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. It was probably five months later that Mary now, in her ninth month, was forced by Rome to join her husband, to accompany her husband, to the city of Bethlehem. And we're told by Luke that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. This was basically standard Roman practice, that when they did a census, you had to go to your hometown and be counted there. The journey itself would have taken, if they were fast, four days. That, But more likely, in her condition, would have taken at least six days, in which Mary was ready to deliver the child. But there, as we know, no accommodations were available in the end, so they lodged, lodged in a cave, converted into a barn for cattle and sheep and donkeys and other animals. Now, the slide that's going to be up there. There we go. Shows basically what this would have looked like. A little rock wall enclosure so the sheep could be protected from any outside animals. And they would go back into the cave and that's where they would keep their cattle and their animals. You know, we, we see the pictures of the wooden creches and, you know, all these little structures. And you have to understand that when you're in Israel, there are very few trees. Very few trees. And so they don't build things out of wood. They build them out of stone. Most people don't even realize that when the Crusaders went into the Holy Land around 1000 AD, uh they, all over Europe, had built their fortresses out of wood. They learned how to build with stone by the hundred years that the Crusaders spent in the Holy Lands because everything in Israel is built out of stone because wood is rare and precious. There it is in that cave that she gave birth to her firstborn. A son, it says, she wrapped him with claws and placed him in a manger, which is basically, again, a stone feeding trough. The picture you see next... There we go. These you find in several places, in various archaeological digs around Israel. but basically, if they wanted to feed their animals or water their animals, what they did is they'd take a block of stone and they would chisel it out and make it into a trough. And that's where the baby Jesus was laid. It's not as good-looking as those little wooden creches. We are mangers we see uh, on TV, but a little more secure. It was that same night that some shepherds who were in the fields outside of the village were guarding their flocks of sheep. And it's important to understand that these are a particular group of shepherds, not just any old shepherds that would have been out in the field. These were temple shepherds, and the sheep that they were tending were lambs that were being prepared for use as sacrificial lambs in the temple in Jerusalem. These were the temple fields where these sheep were raised. And so these particular individuals, it's interesting because when they come upon the baby, when they see the one, well, it says, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and he goes on to say, I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight, and this is how you will recognize him. You will find a baby lying in a manger, wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. And we might wonder, how did they manage to find Jesus in this metropolis of Bethlehem. Well, again, we're talking about a town that couldn't have been more than 450 people. It was a small town. In fact, as we see in the next slide, here's an artist's depiction of what the entire city of Bethlehem would have looked like. It would have taken a great deal of work to walk into town and find a cavern that had been carved out, made into a manger, and to discover the baby but finding the babe, just as the angels had said, they told everyone, it says, about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary quietly treasured these things in her heart and thought about them often. We might wonder, where does Luke get all this information? And the answer is: remember when Luke, when Paul was, went to Jerusalem and then he was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years? It's most likely it was during that time frame that Luke had the opportunity to interview people and find out the exact accounting of what had taken place. But it's also interesting, it says these shepherds went and told everybody about what they had seen. Well, who would they have told? They would have gone back to the temple and they would have informed the priests and others in the temple Of what they had seen and what they had encountered. Mary and Joseph did not immediately return to Nazareth. In fact, they stayed in Bethlehem for at least two more years. We read that on the eighth day, when a child was to be circumcised, they went up to the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where they encountered the prophet Simeon, who declared that he was the Christ. According to Jewish law as well, 32 days after a woman gives birth to a son, she has to go back and she has to offer a sacrifice for her purification, not for the babies, but for her purification, and to dedicate the child to serve the Lord. And so it is that they return to Bethlehem. In fact, it was fully two years later that the Magi show up. And you might say, well, how do we know that? Well, these astrological prognosticators had reported to the King Herod that they had seen a conjunction of stars and planets in the sky, which they interpret as being a portend of the coming king of the Jews. Of course, on hearing this, Herod, was, who was extremely paranoid about losing his kingdom, asked them two simple questions. Where would he be born and the exact time the star had appeared. Now, we'll see why that becomes significant in a moment. But Herod the Great was coming to the end of his life. He dies somewhere between 4 and 1 BC. Historians are still debating that to some degree. But he basically would kill anybody that threatened his throne. In fact, he had killed his own children because he thought they were a threat to him. So much so that Caesar Augustus said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son because he wouldn't eat pigs, but he certainly didn't have any trouble killing off his own sons. But they say, go on to say that when they come to the house, not the cave, Mary and Joseph now are living in a house. When they came to the house, as soon as you find him, he says, report back to me. And they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And then, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so, too, it goes on to say, when they had gone, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, How do we know how much longer it was after the birth that the Magi showed up? Because Herod said, tell me the exact time. And then it says that he ordered that all children two years of age and younger should be executed. One critic made the point, he said, well... If something like that had happened, it would have been news all over the country. Everybody would have been talking about the murder of the innocence. Well, a couple of arguments that counter that is simply, first of all, there were probably not more than four children of that age who were executed, which is significant, I agree, but it wasn't like he'd gone in and killed hundreds of kids. This was a small town. But secondly... Herod had done so many dastardly, murderous things in his lifetime. This was small in comparison. He had given the order that on his death, after he had arrested about 500 of the leaders of Judaism, put them in the Colosseum in Jerusalem, and said, when I die, I want all of these people to be murdered so that there will be weeping throughout the kingdom. Because he knew that when he died, there would be rejoicing and he wanted to make sure that people cried. Fortunately, his heirs didn't obey him and follow through with his his request. But we find in finding that Herod was going to kill the child, Mary and Joseph went south. They fled into Egypt. And there were many Jewish settlements in Egypt at that time. Again, we're not told exactly how long they were there. But when they finally heard that Herod had died, they returned only to discover that his son Archelaus had assumed the throne. And being afraid of him, knowing he was as twisted a personality and character as his father, they returned to Nazareth, which was a completely different province and outside the reach of Archelaus' legal and military and political authority so that they would know that they would be safe away from any harm he might do. Luke concludes his nativity story with this simple statement in chapter 2, verse 40. He said, the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And we don't hear about Jesus for at least eight more years when he turns 12 years of age and celebrates his bar mitzvah and engages in debate with the theological leaders of the nation. Just one last thought to conclude with since uh, I have one minute and 33 seconds left and God forbid that I should waste any seconds. But one last argument about the the death of the innocents, the murder of the babes in Bethlehem. You know, throughout history that's been viewed as such a a dastardly act. How could anybody destroy Innocent life for such self-serving reasons. And it's all basically a matter of charm. That when we see a baby, we look at it and say, how charming, how beautiful, how lovely. But when a child is still in his mother's womb, it can often go unnoticed. I came across a staggering statistic the other day. In the last forty years, not only have there been sixty-three million babies terminated, have been murdered, taken out of their mother's womb, but worldwide there have been one point seven two billion babies aborted. The twenty percent of the world's population died before it ever had a chance to leave the womb. I mean, it's a staggering concept. And that's why, as I was contemplating this passage and thinking about the phrase, the birth of the innocents, do we really think that our world is any less evil than theirs was? We live in a terribly sinful racked world. Do we really believe that God is going to wink at this transgression and not demand at some point an accounting? It's an issue, I'm afraid, that the church has been complicit in simply by being silent. We've accommodated evil because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And I say that knowing that at least half of you, if not more, have been touched and affected, even been the victim of something like abortion. But there comes a point where we simply can't be silent anymore if we're going to have a clear conscience before God. When we're ignorant, we can ignore things. But when we become aware of something being evil and wicked and wrong, At the very least, the thing we should be doing is praying that God would bring an end to this. Many Christians are hopeful right now because our Supreme Court is debating the issue. With all due respect, I don't trust the Supreme Court. They've been supremely wrong many times in the past. But at the same time, would you pray with me that somehow God would so press down upon their souls that Sotomayor and Kagan and Breyer wouldn't be able to sleep at night along with Gorsuch and Roberts, that they would be tormented in their sleep. They would see visions of judgment so that their conscience can be struck and they would make a decision to say this is... This ridiculous ruling, Roe versus Wade, using the Fourteenth Amendment, which guarantees right of personal property or personal uh, privacy, as a justification for taking the life of an unborn child, is staggeringly. Well, let me put it this way: one of my favorite quotes, Michael Crichton, who wrote, you know. Uh, uh, Andromeda Strain and Jurassic Park and all those things. Brilliant writer. He wrote Andromeda Strain, a best-selling book, science fiction book when he was in his first year at medical school. <laughs> I put him in a category of being really smart, right? <laughs> he was interviewed once and, and the guy was interviewing him saying, you know, it's rumored that you think that the producers in Hollywood are stupid. And he just simply responded and said, fabulously stupid. <laughs> I pray God would so powerfully move upon our nation that we would just sorrow to repentance for this sin. Two great sins of our nation for which I think we are be held accountable. The first one is slavery. and the second one is a thousand times worse. It's abortion. It's all a matter of perspective. I know in making that statement, there'll be people going, What a minute, you think it's worse than slavery? Yeah. I'm not saying slavery wasn't horrible and bad and evil and wicked and wrong, but I'm saying the death of 1.72 billion babies is the most horrendous thing. Forget about Hitler and Stalin and those guys are amateurs compared to what faux science has done to the unborn. Father God, I pray that as we celebrate your births miraculously, that also we would feel the grief of those mothers and fathers must have felt 2,000 years ago when Herod's soldiers came in and grabbed their babies, their little toddlers, and executed them for reasons that they would not even know or understand. And yet today, Lord, we live in a world that we've been shielded from its brutality because it's done in a supposedly clinical setting. And yet the basic facts remain the same, that lives are terminated. Father, I pray that we would surrender our lives to you, but and doing that, Lord, we'd also recognize that there's this great evil that may very well be visited upon this land if we do not repent. We pray for your mercy and grace in Jesus' name.